I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. I'm so excited that Recliner NYC is partnering with me because I found this longish nightgown thing, and I don't wear nightgowns usually, but it, it's like a floor-length kind of dress made out of the softest fabric I've ever felt. And the front is light gray and the back is black and it goes all the way to the floor. And I saw it on an ad on Instagram and had to get it. And now I bought it and I'm obsessed. So we went after the recliner in New York City and they gave us a discount and um, you can find it on my website. It's amazing. I'm so excited to partner with them. Um, <laughs> Nine-tenths of the customers told them that their products have helped improve their sleep, which I totally believe because these pajamas and my nightgown and everything are functional, but kind of stylish and really awesome. So go to recliner.nyc and use code MOMSXRECLINER, MOMSXRECLINER, and you get 20% off, which I wish I had had when I got my nightgown. So anyway, go check it out and tell me what you think. I loved it. I had such a nice time talking to Elizabeth Wetmore, who's the author of Valentine, which is the hashtag read with Jenna Today Show pick. Elizabeth also came to my virtual book club, which was so much fun. And if you want to join, just go to the link in my bio or my website at zivyowens.com and sign up for the book club. Anyway, Elizabeth Wetmore um, is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She's the recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and two fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, as well as a grant from the Barbara Deming Foundation. She was a Rona Jaffe Scholar in Fiction at Breadloaf and a fellow at the McDowell Colony. In the spring of 2015, she was one of six writers in residence at Hedgebrook. A native of West Texas, she currently lives in Chicago. <laughs> I'm sorry to catch you. Hopefully this can just be, a, you know, a minute of downtime in your crazy day. Oh, no, is- no, I'm so excited to get to talk with you. I was telling Samantha, my agent, that I felt like we had just gotten started. And and I think as much as anything else that has to do with both my inexperience with <laughs> podcast and with live events and my sort of Texan sort of propensity for you know, rambling on and just sort of, you know, beating around the bush. So I'm so glad we get a chance to do this again. A little might be repetitive. I'm so tickled with how all of this is going, you know, in part because I've just, I've really come to understand in the last week, I'm a bit of a hermit in my regular life, like actually really a hermit. (laughs) And I've been, and I've always thought that I wrote mostly for myself and my own sort of amusement. And you'll hear writers talk about who like their ideal reader is. And, you know, my ideal reader is like me. (laughs) And so I've been kind of, I've been so blown away at how, what a freaking honor it is and how, and how touched I am that to be learning that so many people are reading the book, you know, and, and how, meaningful that is to me. And in particular, you know, to be hearing from people who are sending messages, you know, via Instagram or whatever, saying that they've been moved by the book and, 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 and they're all amazing, but the ones that are most amazing are the ones who are coming from women and girls who know that part of the world and who are so delighted to see characters who are so familiar to them, you know, in literature. I mean, they're so not that, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is literature. I mean, that's such a lofty term, but you know what, you get my point. And so like one woman sent me an email and it was a three sentence email. And it said, I've lived here my whole life. 
you nailed it. Thank you for writing this book. And I was just like, I just, I know, right. It just moved me to tears. You know, I mean, like I was like, oh, right. This is amazing. Like, this is what it's all about too. It's not just being alone in your room, you know, spinning stories, but, you know, sharing it and, and having people be moved, you know? So it's, it's really what remarkable days these are. <laughs> 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 because, you know, all this and, you know, I mean, in a million years of all the ways that I would imagine the world would be going right now, you know, as my book was coming out, you know, this is so, you know, it's just, it's, it's these are such strange days, you know, and there's this little part of me that you're like, whoa, 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 book, book, wait, 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 but pandemic, pandemic, like, let's not talk about the book. How are you doing? You know, how are your children? Are you well, you know, are you safe? You know, but, but it's a good thing to be able to, to, set it aside for a few hours and be involved in, in a book. And to think that my book is actually like doing for a few people here and there, like what books have done for me my whole life, right. is just heady (laughs) (laughs) and wonderful. So did your uh, family have a good holiday weekend? And we did. Thank you for asking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that the thing that's so great is that now we can't go outside and connect, right? But mm-hmm. connecting through stories is what's connected people forever, right? For generations before us and generations to come. And you and the people who have books out now, they're like the main form of communication for many people. And so it's like, I don't know, it has this extra weight to it. And I think people are particularly grateful because especially your book with so many different stories of so many different types of people at different life stages, you can touch so many people. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, I'm blown away by how all of this is going. So honestly, so. So, so wait, so back up a little bit and talk about when you started this book. I know when we did our quick Instagram live, you talked about that you're, you were pregnant, right? With your son. Mm -hmm. So tell me about starting it and how it started as short stories and how it became what it is now as Valentine, this fully formed novel. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, I started it when I was pregnant with Hank, and I it, it kind of a, a few things sort of all came together at once. I I was teaching composition, and so this was 2004. So this wasn't the 2008 crisis, but this was the 2004 Illinois crisis, in which adjunct faculty were just laid off wholesale. So I got laid off from my composition teaching job, and found out I was pregnant two weeks later. <laughs> So I lost my health care and I found out I was pregnant and, and, and I had been thinking about these stories for, you know, my whole life. And I thought, well, you know, this is a great time to just sit down and sort of hammer out these stories. This is going to be a piece of cake. I've been gone for long enough. You know, I, I, I actually imagined that I would, that I would finish it before I had Hank <laughs> <laughs> which like now I look back on that and I just think, wow, what a, what was I thinking? And so I thought that, that I would sit down and sort of hammer out these stories pretty quickly and that it would be a done deal. And, you know, I would have my son and, you know, and, and, and look for work and sort of, you know, go back to things. And what I discovered, of course, was that it was so much more of a 
Pandora's box that I was opening than I ever realized. And not just um, because it was hard, because writing is hard. And it's, and, and, and I'm, I mean, writing is hard for everyone. I'm, I'm no different. I'm probably a bit slower than a lot of people. You know, you hear these stories of like Trollope or whatever would finish a book in the morning and then start his next book after lunch, you know, and, and, and God bless him, you know, but that's not me ever. I'm terribly slow. I have to think about things for a long time. I spend a lot of time staring out the window and I revise constantly. So I, I thought this was going to be a piece of cake. Of course it wasn't. It was so much harder than I expected. And at the same time, you know, I realized after I finally did get a draft, which was when he was about four years old, (laughs) that I was telling a a more sort of overarching story that this wasn't just a collection. And I don't want to say just a collection in a disparaging way, because I happen to love short stories. That's actually the form I'm most comfortable with. And I think I probably started with short stories as much as anything else, because I love them, but also because I had no idea how to write a novel. And so once I realized there was kind of an overarching story to it, you know, I went back and, and sort of started treating it accordingly. But But at the same time, you know, I was always working. My husband and I, you know, have always kind of hung on to the sort of lower end of the middle class. You know, he's a high school English teacher for an independent school. And I was an independent copy editor and, you know, sort of taught adjunct for a while. And so so as I was writing the book, I often set it aside for long periods of time, either just for practical reasons, you know, we just raising a, a child, you know, or for frankly, emotional reasons, which was that I, I found the book hard to write. And sort of in spite of not having been there for a really long time and thinking that I finally maybe had the perspective I needed to, to be able to write this book, when I actually got into it, I often had to step away for long periods of time because either I wasn't seeing the characters clearly or according them the kind of dignity that they deserved, you know, or because I frankly just lost my nerve. (laughs) So, and then of course there were just the practical parts of, of living, you know, George and I were doing the gig economy before they even like called it such a thing, you know, and, and my work life, you know, I left home at 18 and with really no money and no survival skills at all for being out in the world outside of West Texas. And so, you know, I, you know, I've always waited tables and driven cabs and bartended and, you know, and waited tables and bartended. And so I, so I've, you know, I've always kind of writing has always been something that I've, with the exception of graduate school, writing has always been something that's I've, I've squeezed in around the edges of my life, you know? So, and so on the one hand, it makes for a slow going. And on the other hand, I think it probably gives me a lot of empathy for the kinds of working class characters I'm writing about, you know, I have a joke with some of my girlfriends that if I ever write a book that's about a college professor, you know, who's, who's, who's suffering from some kind of terrible midlife ennui, like just shoot me, (laughs) you know, because, because, and those are great books, don't get me wrong. But, but I mean, the, the characters I'm interested in, you know, are characters like Jenny, you know, who, who, who longs for beauty and holds up in her bathroom, looking at library books, of of paintings and museums that she's never even heard of, you know, and and I think a lot about that. Characters who who somehow don't think they have a right to, or that these things, you know, beauty, art, aren't really for them, you know. And those are 
really the characters I'm, I'm interested in. So, so slow going on the one hand, but on the other hand, hopefully it gave me a kind of empathy and compassion, you know, for these characters that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So long answer to a real, are you going to be, are you going to be editing this? (laughs) It was a great answer. Either way. (laughs) I'll edit edit a little, but that was a great answer. And so just to bookend this, your son, who you were pregnant with when you started, how old is he now? He is 15. So I sold the book when he was 13. So yeah. And how did that, how did that happen? Well, you know, for all the talk about the time it took me to write the book, actually, to be honest, and it was pretty easy. I got really, really lucky. I had an amazing agent who believed in the project. And once I finally finished the damn thing, it actually sold really quickly. And, and that was, and, and that was amazing. I, the week we, we submitted it in early August. And, and of course, by then I understood a little bit more about the the publishing industry. And so I, thought, you know, well, nothing's going on in New York. It's August. Everyone's elsewhere. And so I'll brush off my resume and start thinking about what's next. You know, the book is done and it sold very, very quickly and even in August. And so it was pretty magical, honestly. (laughs) Well, it's so well-deserved. It's a really fantastic book. An amazing editor. So who I love dearly and has been just brilliant in every way. So So now you're a debut novelist at age 52. How does that feel? It feels great. Not going to lie. It feels great. And it feels right. You know, I think that it can be really easy, especially in in the arts, to to sort of put yourself on a timeline of, of when things are appropriate and when they're not. And of course, that's for those of us who don't come from backgrounds where, you know, art making is prized, you know, or even really considered to be an option as a way of earning a living. You know, I think it can be really easy to sort of, you know, hit your 35th birthday and, you know, no book and your 40th birthday and no book and your 45th birthday and no book and and to think, you know, okay, this is over. This is not happening. It's time to to sort of set it all aside and, and, and go on to, you know, my quote, real life. And, you know, for me, the, I definitely had those moments. I mean, I've, I mean, I, you know, I've had my dark nights of the writer's soul for sure. But every time I thought about giving up on this book, I was filled with such sorrow, you know, at the idea that these women and girls stories or that, I mean, of course, you know, someone else could have written this book or, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm the, you know, and these women and girls could have told their own stories. It's not like I'm doing, you know, any of these characters a big favor or whatever, but, but, but when I did think of abandoning it, it, it really filled me with such sorrow to think that, you know, I, I couldn't do it, that I think, you know, even when I set it aside and thought, this is it, this is over. I, I always found myself going back to it and feeling a, a great sense of relief when I did. So, yeah. And I know you said before that the characters were fictional characters, but they were somehow based on types of people mm-hmm. you know, and that Larkspur Lane is a not a real street, but it mimicked the street that you were on. Tell me about sort of putting, taking your whole experience and mashing it up and making it, it fiction. And, and which part of it did you really want to get out? Like which part of the story, which there were so many characters, like whose story did you feel most compelled to get out into the world? Oh, gosh, I felt compelled to get all their stories out in the world. I think, I think 
glory and the and the terrible sort of miscarriage of justice and the terrible sort of racism that I witnessed growing up. And I was a, you know, working class, middle class white kid, you know, so my experience was pretty in retrospect, pretty sheltered in a lot of ways. I mean, I think a lot of the reason it took me so long to write the book was that I just did not see my hometown clearly for a really long time. You know, the glory story was one that I felt most drawn to in a lot of ways because I knew from the beginning that she wasn't going to see any real justice, you know, at least not in a court of law. And I was so heartbroken by the reality of her life, you know, that this was a girl who had endured this horrific experience and then, you know, almost immediately on the heels of that, you know, her mom, who is an undocumented worker, you know, is caught up in an immigration raid and, you know, deported back to Mexico. So now she's going through this without, you know, the one person in her life who who could, you know, probably off, have offered her a great deal of comfort. The relationship, I mean, as you, if, you know, you've seen the book, so I'm pretty obsessed with the relationship between mothers and daughters, <laughs> you know, and all of their complications and glory and, you know, and difficulties. So, so she was uh, probably the character in a lot of ways who most touched my heart and whose story I really, really wanted out there. She was also the, and, and, and at the same time, she was also the character I was most terrified to write for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that, you know, I'm a middle-aged white lady in Chicago, you know, trying to, trying to write from the perspective of this young woman who's endured this horrific crime. So survived this horrific crime. So, but all of them really were so important to me every step of the way. And I tried as best I could in each character story to fully inhabit them, you know, in every possible way to always be asking myself who they were. And I guess maybe in a lot of ways, the reason it took me so long, too, is that I was really trying with each character to to give her 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 page time and her her just her justice, I guess. Wow. So, you know, I was struck. I haven't stopped thinking about the scene with Mary Rose when she goes to get an abortion. And I hate to even bring this up in case this is controversial in any way, but when she she has her daughter with her, the daughter has to wait while she goes through this excruciating sort of emotional process, but she's thinking she can't handle another child. And then she has this experience and then gets immediately pregnant again afterwards. I just, I just keep thinking like you, I think you, you wrote it so clearly that I felt like I was in there. I was like in the waiting room with them. And I just, my heart broke when she got pregnant again. And, And anyway, I just wanted you to like talk about putting that scene in and, and where it came from, or I don't know. The de- maybe just the dead endness of life for some people. I don't know. Tell me what you are, had in mind. Well, and also the incredible humanity of the way women find a way, right? Like regardless of how few resources they have, how little money they have, you know, they find a way. I mean, one of my favorite parts of that scene is that she has to take her daughter with her because yeah. she has nowhere else for her to be, you know, and and when she gets to the clinic in New Mexico, you know, the woman behind the counter, you know, offers to, to keep an eye on her daughter for, right? And so... I, I love that chapter and I love that scene. And it was a scene that I thought about for a really long time, in part because it's historically accurate. You know, in 1976, in spite of it being three years post Roe v. Wade, you know, women in my hometown still had to drive about 350 miles to get an abortion, you know. And 
what that meant for them then is that they had to find a way to absent themselves from their lives, you know, and for a lot of women that was not possible and they became mothers, you know. There's another character later in the book, um, Carla, you know, who when she gets pregnant, she can't figure out a way, you know, to get there. She can't, she can't figure out a way. She's, you know, a teenager. She doesn't have a car, you know. She doesn't, she's never really been out of her hometown, you know. She's afraid and somehow, you know, the clock just keeps ticking and by the time you know she realizes that the window is closed for her you know she's she's going to become a mom you know and i and i think a lot about how many women in in rural areas women who don't have a lot of resources women who come from backgrounds that are deeply religious and anti-choice you know and how motherhood is is a is a thing that really can be thrust upon them and and some women you know recover from that beautifully and some women it it sort of haunts them for the rest of their lives you know the 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 sort of the doors that they see slamming closed at the age of 18 or 19 years old. You know, one of the things that I didn't realize when I first started writing this book was how terribly young all of these women are, you know, or not all of them, Mrs. Mrs. Shepherds, you know, she's an old lady, but, you know, but, you know, these women in this book are 25 years old and they have nine-year-old daughters, you know, and, and so I thought about that. And then, you know, and I, I hear you on not wanting to be controversial, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, the, the the sad reality is that that was true in 1976 in my hometown, and that is true today. You know, if you're a young woman in Odessa, Texas right now, and you need access to an abortion, you know, you better hope you can get into a car and, and drive at least 300, 300 or 350 miles, you know, and, and disappear from your life for a couple of days to be able to pull that off, you know, so the money the 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 way to get there you know the ability to to disappear from your home life you know you know and and as we speak i mean the state of texas has just declared abortion and optional surgery during the pandemic so you know they have i mean it's it's it, this is in court right now they have suspended all abortions in the state of texas during the pandemic and the deeply cynical way it's being presented is that they need those masks and those medical supplies when in fact that is not at all what's going on what they're doing is they're punishing women you know and 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 denying them you know access to medical medical care in the midst of a pandemic and and you know let's not kid ourselves for a moment of, of about who the women are who will be affected by this you know women of means you know, will be fine as they were in 1976. You know, the women who are going to find themselves thrust into motherhood in the midst of this pandemic are poor women, you know, women in rural areas, women who are in abusive relationships, women who already have children who can't find a place for them to be, women who don't have money, women who don't have cars. I mean, and so, you know, the, it's, it's still really, sadly, it's true now, you know, it's, it's as true today as it was in 1976. So, But then you see the effects of the flip side when you have young mothers like Ginny who end up saying, I can't deal with this anymore and just, you know, driving off. And then you right. see what happens to her daughter as she's left behind and the sadness of waiting for her mom to come home. I mean, oh my gosh, it's just like there's no good outcome sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yet and, it's, and, and yet the book, the book is so inspiring, but I just mean like sometimes and for the teenage moms, I don't know, just seems yeah. like, yeah, very difficult. 
Yeah, and and yet the human spirit prevails, right? Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, even in the midst of like the most sort of dire moments, there are these tiny little moments of kindness. The man who fixes her car for mm-hmm. her, exactly. Yeah. The woman who you know volunteers to watch Amy while Mary Rose has the surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that was something that always kept me going in this book was you know understanding in a real visceral way the way people who don't think of themselves as heroic manage to step up to the plate you know again and again and again when the when the when the moment calls for it you know so wow so what do you think is going to happen with your life next i mean you're sort of at the beginning of this huge meteoric rise with the being picked as a book club pick on the Today Show and all the rest of it. I mean, do you, are you still writing in your spare time? Are you just like full on focused on trying to get this book in the right hands? What's on your plate? Well, I'm, I'm a fan of the notebook. About five years ago, I started writing in longhand again, because I was having a particularly sort of nasty case of writer's block. And I decided to pick up a notebook, these little dollar fifty, you know, Mead notebooks and start writing longhand again. And what I found is that um, I almost always start things longhand now. So I'm about to finish this notebook. I'll probably finish it today. It's got like two pages. And I'm going to tell you, I, I was joking to George last night that this is one to burn in the backyard because I, if there are five or six pages that are salvageable for fiction writing, I will be lucky. Mostly this notebook is just me rocking back and forth in the corner longhand, <laughs> you know, but so yeah, I'm, but I am, I'm working on a couple of short stories, which is really one of my passions. And, and while I was writing this book, I actually wrote two complete collections of short stories that are unrelated to this, although one is still set in West Texas. So I guess it's related in that way. And I'm eyeballing the first hundred pages of the next book, which is going to be set in Odessa with some of these same characters, only a bit older. And it begins in the fall of 1982 at the peak of the oil boom and ends in the spring of 1983 when the entire bottom has fallen out of the market, which is a whole different book, right? Valentine is set at the cusp of an oil boom. An oil bust is a really different animal um, in that part of the world. Suddenly, you know, houses are foreclosed upon, unemployment shoots through the roof. It's a terribly desperate time. And at the same time, there are odd there's an odd beauty to it because the town clears out and so things become very quiet, you know, and I've been thinking about that a lot. So that's the next book. Deborah Ann will be a bit older and I think she'll probably take a much larger role in the next book. Some of the other characters who were major characters in this book will will be more in the background, I think. And I mean, as you can see, I'm still like sorting it out, you know. I'm, but. I'm really excited to know that at the end of this book, we don't have to just say goodbye to the characters because as I said, they are so real and I became so invested in them and what happened. So I'm thrilled to hear that that's the plan. Yeah. I um, thought I was done with them too, but no. Okay. <laughs> I am not done. I, I, in fact, this may be where I land for the rest of my life is, is these women and these girls, you know, hopefully it won't take me 14 years. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any advice to aspiring authors? I do. I have a ton of advice. I guess the, I guess the first thing I would say to writers is you're not alone. You know, I, I think that there's this, there's this kind of lore for writers about, you know, the, 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 the brilliant writer who holds up in their room alone and just by force of will and their own genius and their own willpower and, you know, 
unwillingness to give up and smarts, you know, and imagination. It turns out this beautiful work. And that has not been my experience at all. You know, my experience is that my book would not exist without the love and support and faith of friends and family, you know, from 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 women who took care of my son for a few hours when he was little, you know, so I could just hammer out a few sentences to my husband who made who's a beautiful poet in his own right and made the sacrifice of taking on a second job for several years. For several years, he taught high school English all day and then went and tutored, you know, up on the North Shore of Chicago after work so that I could work as little as possible for money. So I guess the first thing I would say is you're not alone. And the second thing I would say is ask for help. I think it's really hard to to ask people to make sacrifices for you and your artwork. And I think that's particularly hard maybe for women, although I'm sure it's hard for male writers as well. But I think for women, asking your family to sacrifice for you to to be able to finish a book is is very hard. And often what happens instead is they don't. They don't ask for people to sacrifice for them. They just try to muddle through as best they can. You know, I I wrote a lot, you know, in the hours between midnight and three o'clock in the morning, you know. But I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, you're not on anyone else's timetable. You know, some of us just don't have lives that lend themselves to getting our first book deal, you know, in our mid-20s. I mean, we just don't. And and American literature is poorer for it when we don't have working class writers, you know, telling their stories. So, you know, everyone's on their own timetable. And then finally, I guess what I would say is be good to yourself. This is so hard. It's hard under the best of circumstances. But if you're juggling two or three jobs and raising children, you know, it's it can feel almost impossible. And so I think there's a, a really fine line between being kind to yourself without bullshitting yourself. You know, you know, I guess I would say be kind to yourself. You know, the work we're doing matters. These stories matter. I'm so honored that that the that stories of these women and girls are out there in the world. And I think they're important. And and it took me a long time to do it. But I don't think the book would have been as good as it is, you know, if it hadn't taken me that much time, you know, and hopeful. I mean, I guess you never really know if your work is good, but, you know, insofar as I think it's pretty good in places, you know, I, I know that the time that I put in was crucial. So, you know, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's my advice. You're not alone. I also kind of like to imagine, you know, that in some tiny little way, every time I sit down to write that all the like, you know, souls and spirits of all the writers that I've ever loved are somehow like sort of perched on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, keep going, keep going, you know, and, and so yeah, that's, I guess that would be my advice. Hang in there. You know, if you have faith in your work, and you know, you've got a story to tell, you know, it doesn't matter how long it takes, you know, and you have the right to do it. You know, my kid, the last couple of years I worked on my book, I don't know if I volunteered at all at my kid's school. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I was really intent on finishing the book there at the end. So, well, Honestly, I am so happy for you. I know I'm just getting to know you, but I am so happy for you and congratulations. And I'm just going to sort of watch in the wings as you take off. And I just could not be more excited for you. So thanks for sharing your time with me. 
I feel the same. I, I am so hopeful that when we're all free to move about the cabin again, that I'm able to get out to New York. And when I do, let's let's go celebrate with a glass of wine. I would so, love that. I would really yeah, I would love, love it. <laughs> and like I said, my screen is like completely black now, so I can't see your beautiful face to tell you <laughs> thank you. But this has been such a pleasure and I love the work you're doing. So, thank you. you know, moms are my favorite people. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, thank so, you so much. I think moms are pretty much the most marvelous people on the planet. And yeah, it's an honor to get to do this and talk with you. So thank you. You too. All right. Well, take care. And we'll to be continued in person one of these days. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And good luck. And I hope you and yours all are well and, you know, you able to, to get outside here and there and get a little fresh air. Are you in New York? No, we're out on Long Island. Oh, okay. Oh, God. So, okay. So yeah, y'all have got your own thing going on out there right now. Well, yes, I'm thinking we of you all. <laughs> I have so many dear friends in New York and it's such a beautiful city. My heart aches for everything that y'all are going through right now. So anyway, thank you, Zibby. I really appreciate it. Okay. Okay. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Recliner NYC for being a partner, for giving everybody a discount of 20% off with the code MOMSXRECLINER and for partnering with me after I loved your product so much. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.